Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the way you talk to your customers could kill your CX results. And cutting off a contractor may not solve the problem you think it will. It's Thursday, August 18th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The General Services Administration is lifting the limit on the Alliant 2 contract. The Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, Sonny Hashmi, says the vehicle's done about $36 billion in business. The new limit on Alliant 2 will be $75 billion. That's up from the original limit of $50 billion. The Army will start a bring-your-own-device pilot within the next two months. Lieutenant General John Morrison says the pilot will test a secure capability that will let the user access the Army network directly. Morrison says the pilot will start with the National Guard and Reserve, but it'll include active-duty soldiers soon. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 2022 edition of Fed Talks is next Wednesday. The federal CIO Claire Martorana and the DOD CIO John Sherman are just two of the high-level leaders in government and industry that you'll see there. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Technologists will join the development process earlier on projects that improve customer experience. The Office of the Federal CIO at the Office of Management and Budget is leading an effort across the agencies. Amanda Emick is Senior Director of Business Development at Publicis Sapient. She's former Director of Web Communications at the Department of Agriculture. Amanda, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's that healthy intersection look like? And how early in the process do you see technologists being useful, necessary in a customer experience project development? Welcome. Thank you. More than how how soon or how early, it's really early and often. Um, oftentimes you see tech coming to the table, which is wonderful. But I think we even need to widen the aperture a little bit and think about who is bringing that voice of the customer Um, Sometimes it's the technologist, sometimes it's the program office, sometimes it's a CX lead, and we're seeing a different um, set of options rolled out across government, which is wonderful. Um, You know, if any one of those entities are left alone, the opportunity is likely to miss the mark. All right. Program manager, customer experience lead, chief information officer, the technology team. Is there a better source than the others for that voice of the customer? Or does it is, is all that matters is that the voice of the customer is known and heard and dispersed somewhere in that process? Those who know me um, realize that one of my favorite phrases is it depends. And, you know, we don't have a one size fits all in government. And the way that we approach it at Publicis Sapient, even among our commercial and federal mix of clients is, bringing three lenses every time, you know, customer capability and business, but in government, you can swap business for mission, mm-hmm. right? So when you when you bring that interdisciplinary view to things, then you have, um, you know, a nice team of experts, wherever they come from in a given agency, who can look at a more holistic strategy, because what you, what you get from that combination is a real catalyst for divergent and convergent thinking. You know, we, we know that government often goes the convergent route and we need a thing 
Um, but there's a lot of beauty when you have a lot of creative ideas. You get more engaged stakeholders inside the government as well as the external ones. Um, there's more excitement and it just creates for a more uh, delightful experience where folks are really aligned on those core mission as well as the the kind of business of the organization too all of those things have to be considered so the voice of the customer i want to drill into that because that strikes me okay if it doesn't matter where that comes from it matters that that exists how do how does one know or how does one organization know that one's really hearing the voice of the customer and not assuming that it's hearing the voice of the customer not to be too pedestrian but you have to talk to them Right. Um, oftentimes there's this desire to jump right into the building of the thing instead of the uh, kind of discovery or the research. Uh, so one of the largest issues we see in modernization projects uh, without service design or customer insights is that they often waste money on efforts because they go off building a thing and then say, wait a second, <laughs> we didn't know. And you can do this a number of ways. Um, you know, Obviously, user research, having conversations with the, the real humans that will be touching the program system tool, whatever it might be. Um, and then as you go along, building interactive prototypes and having user acceptance testing. There are ways that you can do in, in a very targeted and efficient manner to actually get the real-time feedback before you go too far down the line. That's just really basic as far as an agile development approach. All right. Talking to the customer seems to be something that your former agency has gotten pretty right because one of the reasons that the agriculture department cited when they graduated out of the centers of excellence effort a couple of years ago was that they had done these things through the coe uh, very customer facing websites applications and so on that worked really well that the people in the field that were using them whether they were internal or external customers had good experiences with what what is the hallmark of a successful talk to the customer um, campaign, effort, whatever you want to call it? I would say you have to begin every single time from a place of curiosity and assume you know nothing. We all bring our biases to the table. And so when you have a you know federal mission, that's been delivering a service or a program over time, you may adopt certain notions about what customers need or want based on some sort of interaction you have had. You can't paint an entire community or persona group by the same brush. And so you need to constantly refresh that and check in. And so kind of ignore throughout the book <laughs> what you know, start, start from a place of curiosity first. And then you can feather in more of, of your expertise and other research and, and sources that can help you make a better, well-rounded end product. And you need to do that before you start to reimagine the business process, I would I would think. Yeah. It, sometimes you, you really do have a good idea about what needs to happen. Sometimes it's more of a hypothesis um, or kind of open-ended. So it, it depends. Again, yeah. <laughs> you have to just ask all the questions. Is it helpful when you're doing that research, when you're conducting those conversations to ask questions like, would it help if we tried this? What if we tried this? Or does that kind of, does, does that lead the witness as they would say in a courtroom? 
Oftentimes it does. And, and you can get to, to the types of answers you're seeking uh, through a number of different ways. And often what you start to do is, as you go down the funnel, if you will, uh, you can start to test some options. And, and there's a lot of tools at the government's disposal uh, where you can start to get that in as an objective way as possible. How do you look at your data after you've conducted that and know that you've got good data on which to make those kinds of decisions, Amanda? The government is making tremendous strides. You see through the the data council and you know chief data officers um, across the the cabinet agencies and beyond. Um, you have to ask the right questions and measure the right things. One of the thing, one of the items about procurements as well in the modernization or just uh, customer experience advancement place is that the units of measurement are often wrong. You know, they're they're bound by fiscal years, budget cycles, congressional reviews, things of that nature, and so the emphasis is more on a kind of quick win, if you will, and some points that you can put on the board. What that ignores is looking at um, where a customer group uh, happens to be as a starting place and then understanding what does the outcome look like? Where do we want them to go? Mm-hmm. And so that, that again, influences how you look at the data to see what's really important for success. It's not going to be things like, downloads or clicks or whatever, you know, that is a very superficial level that can give you an idea of direction. The more challenging measures are in terms of, you know, qualitative and and how there are satisfaction surveys and things of that nature, but that's only part of the puzzle. Well, and that's where I wanted to finish because it strikes me that it's important to continue that dialogue with the customer after the fact, after the thing's done, whatever you're doing. Is it as simple as just asking the customer, did we get it right? Or is there more to it, to the follow on than that? Yeah, it could absolutely be binary. I think the, what's great about the agile process that government is is really making an effort to put in place is it's a continuous cycle of improvement iteration. And so we don't just get to the end of the road and move on. And that way it's kind of like 495. I feel like as soon as they get from one end, they just start again. There's always going to be a pothole to fill. Great to talk to you as always, Amanda. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about customer experience in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the Fed Scoop 50. You can vote for your choices until September 30th, and we announce the winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Justice Department isn't using its power to disqualify contractors enough, according to two senators. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ben Ray Lujan are writing Attorney General Merrick Garland and Deputy AG Lisa Monaco to use their powers of suspension and debarment more. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting. He's former principal executive director of the Office of Acquisition, Logistics and Construction at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Greg, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. These senators write, while they're often considered together, suspension and debarment are distinct tools at the at the department's disposal. What do each of those tools do for people who are not familiar with those terms? Welcome, Greg. Uh, Francis, great to be with you. 
And I think this is a great topic uh, for the senators to raise, uh, and not just with Department of Justice, but across other agencies. So suspension and debarment, they, they do really work uh, hand in hand, and suspension is more of a temporary uh, cessation of a company uh, getting contracts. Uh, think about it, if you equate it to the criminal system, it's somewhat like an indictment that an agency has looked and said, there's enough here that we need to take a pause uh, and stop awarding uh, any additional contracts to this company. Typically, that's done no more than a year uh, while there's some investigative activity going on to, to really kind of round out uh, what may be happening, uh, including having the suspension and department official uh, talk to the company involved to try to get a better understanding. The, the, really the next move from suspension to disbarment is really if you go through that investigation and you see really there's a need uh, for more, uh, and I won't call it permanent because disbarment's really up, typically up to three years, uh, up to discretion of the, uh, again, that suspension and disbarment official, but that's typically up to three years and it bans a contractor from getting any government contracts, uh, grants, or those kind of activities with the federal government. So it's a pretty, it's a, uh, it's a pretty tough uh, decision for industry. So uh, we could say, to use a baseball analogy, suspension is strike one and two. Debarment is strike three. You're out for at least three years. Right. And these senators write, in fiscal 20, the Justice Department issued only three suspensions and eight debarment actions. Under current department practices, even companies that engage in massive years-long schemes to defraud the public are allowed to continue to do business with the government. We hear all the time about these issues that an agency has with a contractor. How does an agency decide we need to take action against a particular vendor? But and as you can imagine, it's a multifaceted decision. And certainly the numbers for the Justice Department is correct. But in, in 2020, overall in the federal government, I think there are around 1,300 disbarment actions uh, and almost 1,400 proposed disbarments where the agency is going through the process but hadn't rendered a final decision. So, you know, again, the, the letter from the senators was focused on Department of Justice, but all agencies uh, also have their processes and, and their own official for making these determinations. And Francis, a lot of things come into play for this decision. Uh, it, it's not about punishment. So it's not about looking at a company and saying, you did something wrong, so now I'm going to punish you. It's about looking at a company and understanding, are they gonna be in a position to try to deliver in the best interest of the government? And the agencies will look at some factors. Did the company bring this issue forward, right? There's sometimes when something happens in a company, there's one or two individuals that are colluding to do something inappropriate, whether that's fraud or bribery or whatever it may be. And the company may have processes and procedures in place and they may, may actually uncover that internally and bring that uh, to the agency. And in fact, when they do uncover, they have an obligation to bring that to the agency. You know, so in, in that type of case, the agency will look at that very positively that the company has come forward and said, we had management controls in place. We uncovered this behavior that's not in line with our culture and our training, and we want to make you aware of it. And here's the steps we're doing either to tighten our controls, you know, or to remove these people from their positions. In those kind of cases, uh, you, you wouldn't see really a suspension or disbarment, right? The government would be working with that company to, you know, and they may say, hey, in six months, I want you to report back on what your internal controls have been. Where you really see it happening is, is where there's a culture of this happening within the company and the company does not have any internal controls that would help them see this. The government winds up finding out about it and goes to the company and really uncovers this malfeasance and looks at it and says, we don't even really see any structure here that would allow us 
to have good faith that this company can rectify this and, and be in a place to really deliver in the best interest of the government. Again, in a forward-looking approach, not in a rearview mirror punishment approach. Is that forward-looking approach the reason that scenarios occur that the senators write about and that other uh, people on Capitol Hill have talked about over the years, that this company did this or that or the other thing, and they're still able to get this next contract? Correct, because that company would go through this process. Uh, and, and certainly if they don't work with the agency and they give them the stiff arm and say, well, I don't care. This is what I'm doing. I'm not going to make any changes. You know, then they're setting themselves up for the heavy hand of the agency to come down with a disbarment. That typically does not happen. Typically, the company comes in and says, we're mitigating this. Here's the internal controls that we're going to do to move forward with. Uh, they can be under almost like a watch care with the agency where they have to have a third party uh, do some checks on their internal controls. And while that's all happening, then justice may be doing uh, criminal prosecutions and there may be fines. And in some cases, when those fines happen, some of that money winds up back in the agency to try to make them whole for what those losses might have been from those prior contracts. So you have those multiple paths from justice working the prosecutorial and the criminal side, while the agency is really looking at is this company the one that can be trusted to deliver for the federal government? And they look at that very broadly because when an agency does a disbarment, it's just not for that agency. It then applies to the whole federal government, gets listed in SAM. Uh, so it, it's a again, it's a pretty big, pretty big stroke. The challenge here, I think, is that it sounds to me the way that you're describing it, that this is entirely an art, depending on each individual situation. And that overseers, I'm not just picking on the hill, but I imagine IGs and GAO and so on, they're looking at scientific specific boxes to check that either it is or it isn't. And it sounds like there's a ton of potential gray area here, Greg. Uh, There is. It's much more art than it is science. And when you read some of the things that were in the senator's letter, you would look at that and go, oh, my goodness, I I can't understand how this would happen. Well, as typically, there's a lot of story uh, behind the headlines uh, on that. Uh, that agencies are working through to, to represent the best interests of the government, but also not to be punitive against an industry or a company that may have two or three bad actors. And they may have a hundred different employees that are coming in and working hard and trying to deliver. And you don't want to disadvantage the hundred because of the efforts uh, of the two or three. So what's, what does an effective evaluation situation look like? that an organization in an agency can determine, is this appropriate or is this a case where we need to uh, move on? Well, I, I think they first, uh, they'll get a case referred to them. Uh, and that can be by the general public. It could be by somebody inside the agency and they'll have a process uh, for that to get uh, to the staff and then get put together for the suspension and disbarment official. And again, one of the first things they look at is how, how do we even get here? Is this something that was nefarious that somebody else uncovered, either a whistleblower or somebody that knew about it or an agency employee that said, hey, there's something wrong here? Or did the company itself bring it forward and then start to work through what are the controls and processes that the company has? And they'll issue, think about it as an interim or initial ruling to the company. And the company has the opportunity then to present their case to the official to say, okay, yes, here's that happened and here's what we've done and these were the three people involved and we've instituted additional controls. But but Francis, as you said, it, it's really about an art and in the end, does this official believe that this company can perform 
in a manner that we would expect from our our companies, right? We we expect somebody doing business with the government be paying their taxes and not no fraud, no bribery, no theft, no inappropriately marking things as made in America if it's not made in America, uh, drug free workplace. I mean, you know, really trying to to work through that, understanding that uh, sometimes just bad things happen, right? You you can have some bad actors. Uh, and it's really about how the company is looking to try to deal with that and looking at their history, right? If a company's come in and now this is the third time that this has happened, they keep saying they're going to do some internal controls, but they never instituted them. Uh, that really starts to work against the company and they're more likely to get that disbarment ruling. What are the measures that you have used or that you would recommend that an agency use today to determine whether the overall suspension and debarment effort in that agency is effective and getting the results that the agency wants for it? I, I think it's hard to do a top line dashboard measure because if you just look at the cases referred, then, then you really don't get an idea about what, what's happening beneath it. Uh, I think the best way to do that is to have some type of third party or, or a, a separate review to come in and look at really all the facts, which is time consuming, uh, which makes it kind of hard to do. You would have to invest in that, the resources, because you just couldn't come in and read a paragraph and say, oh, well, clearly they need to be disbarred. Uh, there'd be a lot of information from both the government side and the company side. Uh, and I think to have something effective in place, you, know, you need to have that kind of extra set of eyes kind of reviewing the decision process. And and to the point that the senators make in this letter to the Justice Department, it strikes me, if you, as you just said, if you're only examining the cases that uh, uh, an office processes, you're not seeing the cases that never made it there because the suspension and debarment effort was effective in Correct. a particular agency or government. Why? Because they write uh, the senator's quote from the FAR, um, suspension and debarment be uh, imposed in the quote, in the public interest for the government's protection and not for purposes of punishment. So if the point is not to beat the vendor over the head when they do something wrong, if the point is to drive better outcomes, I guess you have to measure and examine all the outcomes and determine, well, this happened or this conduct or whatever it was happened in X percentage of the cases overall. And maybe as that number goes down over time, that's one potential measure of effectiveness. Exactly. You could look at that trend line and get an idea because really what you want, this system is set up to try to drive good behavior and drive companies to have the right internal processes to increase their confidence that they're having good behavior at their company. Greg Giddens, always terrific insight. I appreciate drawing on your experience and your your good cheer. And it's great to see you, my friend. Thank you. Always my pleasure, Francis. You can read the letter those senators sent to the Justice Department and read more about suspension and debarment in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast is back Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.